Hello, precious friends. In case you haven't noticed, we are in a season of peril. Perilous times are parading around us and they are not the last of such times in the future history of the world. As I look around and see the pain and suffering and dying and killing and lawlessness and destruction and the tolerance of evil, I ask with King David in Psalm 11, what can the righteous do? My heart ponders, where's the church? You look for a spark of power. And I guess the question that's on my heart is, is the church prepared to take on the warfare that is spiritual warfare in our world today? See, what's on my heart is that we have relaxed for so long <clears throat> that we've drifted into a kind of an apathy and a what will be will be kind of an attitude that has removed the power from the church. And so I've just been examining my own heart and thinking through what is it that makes a powerful Christian? Or what is it that makes a powerful church? What, what are the righteous going to do? How are we going to need to be equipped? What are we, what are we gonna do? And in my mind and heart, I, I ask the Lord that question, where are we and, and what is it that we're going to need to do, to think about in order to be able to be what you have called believers to be in order to, to be what you've called the church to be in the world because we're a spoiled people. And we've relaxed and we've just thought, yeah, I don't know what we thought. The Lord's pleased with us, everything's fine, you know, and we think that everything will continue to be the way it always has been because it's always been that way. And so, in my mind and heart, the Lord started flipping words through my mind when I asked that question. And I realized that, that my mind was going back to the basics. What are, what are the basics? And I started thinking holiness and repentance and undealt with sin and powerful, powerful prayer life. And I realized those are all things we don't talk about much. We've not talked about those things in depth in a long time. We don't hear much about those things anymore because I don't know if it's we think that because time has changed, that God's word has changed, or that God's just going along with the flow with us until he gets ready to come. That's not the case according to scripture. And so I was thinking about holiness and I was flipping through in my mind some scriptures. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Then in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, he says, Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which you, no one, without which no one, We'll see the Lord. But we don't talk about that much. We don't talk about holiness. Then there's sin. 
to the woman caught in adultery, Jesus looked at her and he said, you go and sin no more. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? But we try to, and we don't hear much about that anymore. James 4.17 4, says, To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. Then there's repentance. Matthew 3, 8, many people were coming to John the Baptist to be baptized, and to some of them he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, or bring forth evidence that you have repented. Bring forth evidence of your repentance. And then Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says, the kindness of God leads to repentance. And in Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, unless you are repentant, you will likewise perish. In Revelation 2, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But we don't hear much about sin and repentance. What about prayer? Do we have prayer lives that are powerful enough to overcome the evil and the challenges that are in the world? How do I pray with power? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Let it be a lifestyle for you. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The fervent prayer of a believer, King James says, of a righteous man, can accomplish much. And then he goes on to say, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We're not too much into confessing our sins to one another. And most of us don't go to churches where it's safe to confess your sins because somebody's going to come up with, oh, you did that? Psalm 66 and verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What is regarding iniquity in my heart? Regarding iniquity in my heart means that I've got some pet sins that I don't want to let go of. And you know what that's doing? It's ruining my prayer life. It's eliminating my power in prayer. And then there's the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Uh, the Bible says what it means to fear the Lord is that it is the beginning of wisdom. It says the fear, from the fear of the Lord comes a fountain of life. From the fear of the Lord comes a strong confidence. But we don't hear much about that. So I thought, well, you know what we need to do is we need to just take each one of these things and be sure that we know what the Lord is saying about them and know what they mean. We need to examine them. And, you know, I started doing that and I thought, you know what? These are all intermingled and interfaced. You really can't have 
one without the other, it started reminding me of, I don't know if this is a good illustration, but of electrical wiring. The wires got to come from the power company down the road to my house and then split off into the rooms and into the light fixtures and into the electrical outlets. And everything is connected. And when all of those things are connected, guess what happens? Light comes on. Well, when I think about holiness and dealing with sin and repentance and powerful prayer and the fear of the Lord, when all of those things fit together right, God's light comes on. And I thought, where do you start? You know, if, they, if they're all connected, which one comes first? You know, where, where do we start? And, and there is a foundation that must be laid on which all of these other things can stand. It is brokenness, brokenness. We don't hear much about that today. I wanna to talk to you for a while today about brokenness, and I want us to just look at it for a few minutes. Um, you know me, I get way down and could spend weeks on each one of these things, and I'm gonna try not to do that, but, but let's talk about brokenness today. Many of us know that we are in deep need of a genuine spiritual awakening. The church has taken a position of apathy and powerlessness. We don't mean much in our communities. Nobody says anymore, oh my, here comes the church. That's happened. That was the case when I was growing up. And so now the church has just blended in to the world. Our music sounds like the world. We look like the world, we market like the world. And so we've just blended into the world. And, and in many instances, our own opinions and desires have pushed the will of God to the outside so that we almost, have, you do know when Jesus in the book of Revelation says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He was knocking on the door of a church. And so we have too often postured ourselves with prideful, holier-than-thou, finger-pointing against some while quietly tolerating sin among others. And that creates a testimony of unholiness amidst a prideful spirit that robs us of powerful praying and effective evangelism. Where do we begin? Dr. Henry Blackaby says that utter brokenness in God's holy presence is a prerequisite to any mighty moving of God. Let me read that again. Utter brokenness in God's holy presence is a prerequisite to any mighty moving of God in revival. Today, we often hear the quoting of 2 Chronicles 7.14. It certainly is appropriate for today and needs to be applied to today. But God says that, that when he permits crisis, that's 7.13, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. 
Then in verse 15, he says, then his eyes will be open and his ears will be attentive. We want to watch and wait. And we think if we quote the verse, I think, and say it enough and call our attention to the verse enough that we just want this to happen corporately. Everybody happen at one time. Let it happen as, as a body or as a community. But I want to tell you what, we've got to do the verse. And when we do the verse, this has got to happen individually. And notice what God mentions first. If my people who are called my name by my name will, first of all, humble themselves. Humble themselves. Let's change it. Humble ourselves. There's a deadly heart condition that is pandemic today. We may not realize we have it, but it is afflicting us believers in many, many ways. And it is a heart of pride, a heart of pride that is the opposite of brokenness. It may be, I may be proud of my reputation. I may be proud of my position. I may be proud of my heritage. I may be proud of my job. I may be proud of what I own. I may be proud of my children. I may be proud of my grandchildren. I may hold an office in my church. Um, it may be important to me to have everyone notice me and what I'm doing. I may think I'm more spiritual than others. I may think, you know, th that they need revival. That they need, that y'all need, they need revival. We can be right in the middle of religion. We can be right in the middle of church and yet be very far away from God. We may think we're fine not being in God's Word. You know, I grew up on God's Word. I, I read it when I was a child. I, you know, yeah, I used to read it. I've got it. And we're satisfied with that. We may live and act and operate based on the world's way of thinking because we need to be current. We may not know really what it means to be open and honest and transparent before God, much less other people. And we may say that we believe God is alive, but we act like he's dead. Let's take our hearts to the spiritual heart specialist. Let's see what he says about hearts. What kind of heart is God looking for? What, what does God say defines a healthy heart? The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah understood that the heart was what mattered to God and that if the heart is sick, the whole body's sick. The whole body's going to be in trouble when the heart is diseased. And so Jeremiah penetrated and probed and held people's hearts up to the light. And he pleaded with the chosen people of God to see what he saw. 
He pleaded with the chosen people of God to see their hearts the way God saw their hearts. And so in chapter 5 and verse 23 of the book of Jeremiah, he says, this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. I think we can see some of that today. We don't have to look very far, unfortunately. And when our hearts are stubborn, we become desensitized to God's word. It's rooted in pride. Our stubbornness is rooted in our pride. And so Jesus picked the same theme and upset the whole religious system because Jesus refused to be impressed with what people were impressed with. And he exposed hearts. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. I wonder if he's saying, if your heart is not right when you come to worship, you need to just go on. Just go on back to the house. It's just words with your mouths and trying to draw near to me with your mouths and honor me with your lips and your heart's not connected and it's in vain. Might as well go ahead and do something else. We have a spiritual family history of heart disease for generations, for generations. There's been heart disease, the heart disease of pride that's come down through our lineage. The good news of the gospel is that there is a balm in Gilead and there is a great physician who can replace hearts. He is the great physician and he has made a cure for our deceived diseased hearts. Jesus came to do radical heart surgery. He came to do heart transplants, to give us new hearts, to transform us from the inside out. Now, what kind of heart is God looking for? What kind of heart is desirable to him? Well, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse... 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Go ahead and turn back then to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. What kind of heart is God looking for? A broken and contrite heart. That's where he wants to dwell, and that's what he looks for in sacrifice. It's interesting, uh, David, just before that in the psalm said, For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. 
You're not pleased with a burnt offering. And so have you ever noticed how many people there are that feel like they have to jump through some spiritual hoops to earn God's favor? And David got that. He said, you know, I would bring burnt offerings. I would do this. I would do that. I'd jump through this hoop. I'd jump through that hoop. But that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for humble, contrite hearts. That's all God wanted, a humble, contrite heart. Jesus began his first recorded sermon of his earthly ministry. You will know it as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, with blessed are the poor in spirit. What was the promise? For they shall, in, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, he said to be blessed, to be happy, is the way some translations put that, is you got to be poor in spirit. The word Jesus chose here means beggar. You've got to have a spirit that is a beggar, uh, a person who is utterly, absolutely destitute, someone who has no hope of surviving unless somebody reaches out a hand and pulls them up. And so what was Jesus saying? Blessed are those who realize and recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt that they are spiritual beggars. They know they have no chance apart from God's intervening mercy and grace. Because of their need, they, we reach out to Him. I want to say our need. Because of our need, we reach out to Him. And He responds by giving us new hearts. New hearts. And then He lavishes us with the riches of His kingdom. He's looking for broken hearts. What is brokenness? What is brokenness? There are many misconceptions about what brokenness really means. Uh, let's start with what it's not, kind of. Some people think that brokenness is being sad and gloomy and that to be broken, you've got to have this downcast countenance, um, no laughing or smiling, just always an always look that says, I'm pitiful. Um, or maybe saying, woe is me, I'm just a worm. And some put themselves down and they cannot receive genuine affirmation from people or from God and they, they won't be encouraged because they're just pitiful. I'm just awful. And then a lot of them are always shedding tears that's not biblical brokenness. Some people equate deep hurt or tragic circumstances with brokenness. True brokenness is not a feeling and it is not an emotion. True, mo uh, true brokenness requires a choice. And although it might begin as a one-time choice that is a spiritual turning point, it actually is an ongoing choice so that brokenness becomes a lifestyle. It's something we do over and over and over. It's a choice we make over and over. It's a continuing agreement with God about what He thinks about my heart and my life. 
That's the first question. God, what do you think about my heart and my life? Brokenness, brokenness is the shattering of self-will. That's what brokenness is. I become broken when I choose to shatter my will, my way. And that, that brings about the absolute surrender of my will to God's will. Now, contrite is a word that is used in the Old Testament to speak of brokenness. It's interesting because it suggests something that is pulverized, just crumbled up. And so the question I think is, what does God want to pulverize in us? What does he want to crush? We're going to tell you what it is. It's our self-will. It's that I will go my own way attitude. And God wants to pulverize that. He doesn't want to break our personhood. He doesn't want to break our spirit. He wants to break that part of us which is against his will. He wants to eliminate that part of us that wants to go our way separate from his way. That is self-will. And no, when we speak of we speak of horses being broken. Mind you, I never did that, but I've seen it some. And what do you do when you break a horse? Uh, if you're going to break a horse, you're not going to break his legs. You're not going to stop feeding him and maybe loving him and patting him on the nose or whatever all the things are you do with a horse, you're not going to quit doing any of that. What does it mean to break a horse? We mean that a horse's will has got to be broken. And isn't it fascinating to watch when that happens? I like to watch sometimes the Kentucky Derby on TV some of the great horse races. And there's been some movies out there about these great horses that were wonderful racing horses. And so, you know, what happens, that horse has been broken so that he is compliant with his rider. And that rider can give that horse the least little stimulus, maybe with his foot in the stirrup or maybe with the reins or maybe just talking to him. And that horse is so in union with that rider that, that they're one. And because that horse is broken and responsive, he can fly. That's what it means to be broken. And when our self-will is broken, the life of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit will take over and make us move. It is released through us because we are one with the Spirit of God. We humbly and obediently respond to those convicting nudges of God's Word, just like that rider on that racehorse, a nudge from his right foot or a nudge from his left foot. And with, within God's Word and the Holy Spirit, God can just nudge us like that and we know which way to go. That's brokenness. It's not going around looking sad. It's not being pitiful. It's being powerful.
because the Spirit of God has released His power through us, through the church, so that when the church speaks in America, the people listen because it's God's power. When brokenness happens in my heart, I am stripped of being independent of that independent spirit. I'm stripped of being self-reliant. I know I can't do anything apart from God. And I realize my dependence on God for everything, for the next breath, for the food we eat, for the energy that we have, for the ability to get up and get out of bed in the mornings dependence on God. And I know, I know in that, righteous, in, that, in that brokenness, I know I have no righteousness of my own. Zero, zilch, nada, nothing, none. No righteousness that is my own. The only righteousness that I have is the righteousness that is imparted to me by God through the Holy Spirit because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. I know that my works accomplish nothing. If I figure it out and do it, it's not going to have any spiritual impact. My instruction, my idea has got to come from the Lord. And I know that I am totally dependent on God and on His grace, His unmerited favor. And He so longs to pour that out on us. It's his desire. It's what he wants to do. And so in my brokenness, the soil of my heart becomes soft. And I'm clay that has become pliable in the master's hand. And so when, when we've got good soil, when we've got good soft soil, the seed of the word of God can be planted in my heart and it's going to take root and it's going to grow and bear fruit. Brokenness is taught all through Scripture. It's not a new concept. It's from Genesis to Revelation. There are numerous illustrations of people who were broken and humbled before God. And I really wanted to do all of them, but I know I can't because we'd be here all day. But there are also illustrations of people who were not broken. So we can use them for uh, a contrast. Uh, you're probably familiar with King Saul and King David. Well, in 1 Samuel 13, um, King Saul chose to take God's matters into his own hands. Um, it's an interesting story. I could see myself doing something like this uh, because what had happened was um, the prophet or Samuel, Samuel was one of those people in the Old Testament that had all these different roles. So I don't know whether to really call him a prophet or a priest or whatever he was, but he was God's man and he was God's man for the hour and he was doing God's service. And so Samuel was supposed to come and offer, I'm not Samuel, um, um, my brain went dead. King Saul, yeah, Samuel. King Saul was there waiting for Samuel to come and offer the burnt offering. Well, he was running late. For whatever reason, he didn't show up to offer the burnt offering when he was supposed to be there. And so Saul just decided he'd do it himself. And it was an awful sin. He just didn't do that. But Saul thought, well, I can do this. 
I can do this as well as Samuel. I can do this myself. And so, you know, Saul says that he did it because the people were scattering. So he was just going to go ahead and do it. And when he was confronted with his sin, he defended himself. He justified himself. He made excuses. He blamed others. And he tried to cover his sin. And then finally, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30, he finally said, Saul finally said, I have sinned. But his next words were, please don't tell anybody. Please don't tell the people. So he was more concerned about how he looked to the people than he was concerned about how he looked to God. That is not a broken heart. It's a picture of the opposite of brokenness. Because by comparison, there was King David who committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. He had his neighbor killed. And when he was faced with his sin, he was willing to acknowledge his failure and take personal responsibility for his sin and confess and repent of his sin. And Psalms 32 and 51 show King David's contrite heart, a heart that had been pulverized before the Lord. He was he had a contrite heart and he was he humbled himself before countless people. He humbled himself then, but you know what he did? He wrote about it in the Psalms. So he humbled himself before countless future believers like us who would learn about his sin. We know about David's failure, but you know what? God called him a man after God's own heart. And so the difference is not so much in the magnitude of the sin, but in their response to it. How are we responding to our sin? When the Lord convicts us, are we willing to say, yes, cleanse me, forgive me, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or am I going to be like Saul and say, well, if so-and-so had done such and such, I wouldn't have done that. No, uh -uh. I'm a better than person than that. Or, but did you ever look at somebody else's sins and say, I would never do that? You better watch out. My grandmother always said, you're always going to do what you say you're not going to. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable about two other men who went into the temple to pray. And both of them were doing the same thing. They were in the same place. They were involved in the same spiritual activity. But one man's prayer was acceptable to God, and the other man's prayer didn't make it past the roof. What's the difference? The first man had himself and everybody else fooled. Wait, let's just turn there. Luke chapter 18. We just need to look at this. Luke chapter 18. Um, start in verse 9. This is Jesus' parable. 
And Jesus, he, Jesus, also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, an unbroken heart, and viewed others with contempt because of their self-righteousness. And it says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus, watch it, to himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or I'm, I'm not even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. I do, I do, I do. I jump through hoops. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, shall be broken. But he who humbles or breaks himself shall be exalted. Which would rather happen? You'd rather humble yourself or you'd rather God humble you? He gives us the chance to go first in humbling ourselves. And so, you know, here are these two guys standing in church. And so this first guy, pride led him to compare himself with other sinners. Did you ever stand in a church service and look around and think, well, what are you doing here? Or see somebody looking over the congregation thinking, well, I'm better than you. Oh, God forbid. That's robbing the church of power. That's why we can't perform in the world. That's why we have no victory in the world. And so this man, I love it. Go down into verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 14. When Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified. What did he say? All he said was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all it took. And Jesus responded, what did he do? He reached down with his hand and he gave him a new heart. He gave him a heart transplant. And then he lavished him with the riches of God's kingdom. You know, we could go on and on. There's so much in scripture, but I've got to hasten and ask myself a question. Am I a proud person or am I a broken person? When God looks at my heart, what does he see? Does he see pride and self-sufficiency and independence or does he see brokenness? Does he see a heart that is willing to see our sin the way God sees it? And to ask him for forgiveness to make it right, to do repentance. I read about a missionary. This was really interesting to me. He served in a region of Africa where they had had several known seasons of true revival. That has happened in some places in the world, even as we speak. 
and it's genuine revival. And, but this missionary reported that whenever he would mention the name of any Christian to these African Christians, these African believers, the national believers would ask him, is he a broken Christian? They didn't say, is he a committed Christian? They didn't say, is he a hardworking Christian? They didn't say, is he a knowledgeable Christian? He, they said, is he broken? Is he a broken Christian? That's my question to me. Are we broken Christians? You know, that's a good thing. That's a powerful thing. How will my brokenness show up if I am broken? How will it show up? I'm going to be honest with God and with other people. There won't be deceit. There won't be putting on a show. I will take personal responsibility for my behavior. I take personal responsibility for my sin. I sin because I chose to sin. It was not anybody else's fault. I take responsibility for it. I'm willing to ask others to pray for me. I'm willing to go to some other dear faithful believers and say, you know, God's dealing with me about this or that. Will you pray for me? What are the blessings of brokenness? The Bible is full of blessings of brokenness. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. When we're truly broken, both as individual Christians and in the church, as a corporate body of believers, then the power of the Holy Spirit will be at my disposal with all of the resources of heaven. I will have a straight line to heaven. God will speak to me, and he will know that I'm going to be obedient and walk out whatever he's telling me to do. God resists the proud Ooh, that's a scary verse. Actually, that word shows God putting on war armor. And he stiffs arm, stiff arms the proud. Uh-uh. You're not coming close to me. And so God says, I'm going to resist the proud, but I'm going to come to the rescue of the humble, the broken. So if we're in brokenness, God comes near. And we don't have to go through those times when he seems far away. And it seems like he's not paying attention. God increases our capacity for worship when we are broken. Worship will never be the same when it comes from broken people. God uses broken people not educated people, wealthy people, hardworking people, smart people. God uses broken people. God wants to reveal His presence and His glory in our lives. He wants to reveal His presence and His glory to His people. He wants to fill our hearts and our homes and our churches and our ministries with His love and His Spirit. He wants to do that. But until we're broken, He can't get in because He's been replaced 
by pride and self-sufficiency and self-will. He wants to pour out his grace on the dry, thirsty ground of our lives. He wants to restore our first love for Jesus. He wants to reconcile broken relationships. He wants to rebuild the disrepair around us. He wants to revive his church so that the church can be to the world all that it can be, all of the power, the healing, the salt, the light. That's God's heart for the church. It all begins with brokenness and humility. Used to be a chorus that we sang a lot in church. Do you know it? Spirit of the living God. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Then it says, break me, melt me, mold me, and fill me. Now let's go back to a former thought. I don't get real excited about God having to break me. The song asks him to do that. And it may still be my self-sufficiency because I want to tell you, I relate to all these sins that I've talked about this morning. That's my confession to you. But I'd a whole lot rather um, <clears throat> break myself than for God to have to pulverize my heart. So what I want to do for me voluntarily is bow before him and say, Lord, let me see my heart the way you see it. Make me into a person that you can use. Make our church into a church that is known for its brokenness, its humility, because then it will be a church that you can enter and that you can control and where you have the freedom to move and worship becomes alive. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have nothing. We have no righteousness of our own. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves. But you have invited us to come to you, and you have made the way for us to have a new heart. And I know that when we're saved, we get a new heart, but those hearts over time sometimes get clogged with spiritual cholesterol and, and we need heart surgery. We need to have them opened up. We need to have them cleansed. And I don't know that in my lifetime there's ever been a greater time when we need the Spirit of God to be free to work in this world and to have a church that is relevant in your way, not relevant according to the ways of the world. Oh God, deliver us and let us live lives that honor you, cleanse us from sin and unrighteousness, help us to see ourselves. And once we see ourselves, help us to do what you've called us to do. We pray in the almighty name of the Lord Jesus, amen.
and you see what happens once brokenness is in place. And the things we started out talking about, the holiness and the powerful prayer and the repentance and the dealing with sin all the, and the fear of the Lord, those things all fall into place. Because if I'm broken before the Lord, I'm gonna walk in holiness. If I am broken before the Lord, I'm gonna have a powerful prayer life. If I'm broken before the Lord, I'm going to constantly be dealing with my sin. If I'm broken before the Lord, I'm gonna stand in the fear of God. We'll talk about those next time. God bless you.